I'd like a uh, plain omelet, uh, no potatoes, tomatoes instead, a cup of coffee, and toast. No substitutions. What do you mean? You don't have any tomatoes? Only what's on the menu. You can have a number two, a plain omelet. It comes with cottage fries and rolls. Now, I know what it comes with, but it's not what I want. Well, I'll come back when you make up your mind. Wait a minute. I have made up my mind. I'd like a plain omelet, no potatoes on the plate, a cup of coffee, and a side order of wheat toast. I'm sorry, we don't have any side orders of toast. I'll give you an English muffin or a coffee roll. What do you mean you don't make side orders of toast? You make sandwiches, don't you? Would you like to talk to the manager? Hey, Mac. Shut up. You've got bread and a toaster of some kind? I don't make the rules. Okay, I'll make it as easy for you as I can. I'd like an omelet, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. For number two, chicken salad sand. All the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. <laughs> you see that sign, sir? Yes, you all have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and sarcasm. You see this sign? <laughs> Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And we have cracked the back half of our decade-by-decade decade celebration of film. We are to 1970. We are to five easy pieces, but just not quite yet. Uh, we will uh, give you some some general banter and then some recommends before we hop into that. So, uh, my good friend Ian, what have you been, what have you been watching lately? Well, I, I mentioned just a minute ago off mic that I have been filling my head with nothing but... Jack Nicholson, specifically in the 70s over this, uh, over this last week, uh, but the weekend before, um, watched a couple of things. It was a little bit of a mixed bag of a weekend. We did uh, Birds, of, Birds of Prey, which I know Liz, Liz liked it a little more than I did. It's another one of those movies where if you saw the trailer, you, you saw it. Uh, it's just... It's... It's riddled with all the problems that are continuing to plague DC as they try to do this whole expanded universe thing. Yeah. Um, if they wanted to make a Harley Quinn movie, they should have just done it instead of whatever this was. And there's also, narratively, <laughs> it's just shit. Um, as far as, like, structuring... You, they 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 have they want to have their big explosion at the beginning so they do that and then you know we flash back and then we flash back again and then we i don't know flash forward and back and forward and back i i couldn't fucking make heads or tails of it just because honestly i didn't care yeah and i mean my boy ewan mcgregor is in it and he does his best i guess yeah it just just a just a shit show end to end 
Uh, I mean, Margot Robbie is, I mean, she's great as that character, but I mean, that's not saying much when you've got a film that is just kind of doomed from the outset. Uh, I did, however, earlier that day, uh, based on a recommend from my coworker Max, he usually gives me some pretty good ones, uh, A League of Their Own I had never seen. Really? Really, really enjoyed that. Like, a lot. Yeah, even Madonna in it, I didn't mind, who she is... She is usually shit, but she was tolerable in this. Yeah, I think I think the thing about A League of Their Own that works so well is it's it's extremely well cast. It is Oh, a, absolutely. You, you know, I feel like a lot of a lot of sports movies you tend to get a few of the main kind of characters right, but then everybody else either isn't important or they're they're just kind of there's not a, a, an extra thought given to them, but yeah, a league of their own is an extremely well cast movie. Oh yeah. And every character felt really well fleshed out. Like I, I cared about literally everybody in it. Like it was really, it, you know, it's, I would say it, it touched me. I felt really, you know, I was, I was in it from like five minutes in and I, and Hanks, man, Hanks just fucking—he knocks this one out of the park. He's so—I mean, as good as all the ladies are, he's—you know—he's fantastic too. Gina Davis, always been head over heels in love with Gina Davis. I—I I think she's fantastic. I honest—I mean, I haven't seen Treasure Island, so I can't speak to that monstrosity. <laughs> um, you know that I just know by reputation. But everything that I've seen her in, I've absolutely just been smitten with her. Yeah, yeah. She's from phenomenally it's, talented. It's funny because I, I I feel like in the same short span of time, uh, Melissa and I started something that we never really finished. But we watched uh, within a period of a few days, we watched all the the films nominated for Best Picture in 1987, and one of those was The Accidental Tourist, which is what Gina Davis won her Oscar for. Um, and then I want to say not too soon after that, we. I watched the the long kiss goodnight again, which I hadn't seen in forever. And like, it's great to see actors just like be like, you know what? I can do good, serious Oscar contender stuff, and then I get just do B movie action bullshit too, which is great. I, mean, I love seeing that. Well, the long good night is the long kiss goodnight is not. It's not a great movie, but it is. It looks like they had a shit ton of fun making that movie. And it, it, <laughs> it certainly does, and the, and that helps. Like, I think we I think we mentioned Gina Davis quite a bit in our our Tootsie episode. I think I said something along the lines of you knew she was going to be a star, yeah. you know, from that even from from that early on. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I, sure. I absolutely loved League of Their Own. Yeah, that's great. That's and, a good yeah. That's a good movie. And as far as ensembles go, we also did uh, Jim Jarmusch's new film, The Dead Don't Die. His you know his zombie I saw, flick. I saw Liz post on Facebook that you were that you were watching it. How, how I haven't seen it. It's uh, you know you know how I feel about fourth wall breaks, like they really <laughs> I, drive me up the wall. And I we're know. gonna have we're gonna have one to reckon with in this episode as well. I took uh, I bolded my notes when that happened. I was like, oh, you knew this was going to drive me nuts, right? Um, but the the thing about The Dead Don't Die is it sets itself up to be a fourth wall break from like the very first or second scene. Because it, the whole thing is a big homage to, you know, the old Romero zombie movies, and specifically Night of the Living Dead, the first one. Um, so it starts off with a little scene with uh, Adam Driver, Bill Murray, and Tom Waits, which those three names alone, right, 
great. Uh, yeah, and, boom. Uh, and then it like goes into the credits, and it's one of those like Wes Anderson like look at all my famous friends kind of credits because the cast yeah. on this thing is like everybody with the exception of like Forrest Whitaker who has ever been in a Jim Jarmusch film. This is like a greatest hits of all the people that have worked with him in the past. Um, and there's the, the song, the dead don't die, which is a Sturgill Simpson song. He's in the movie as well. And then we're in the car with Adam driver, Bill Murray, who are these cops, these small town cops. And you know, the, the earth, they're talking about how the earth is, you know, come off its axis because of the, the polar ice caps melting and things are going weird. Like it's super late at night, but it's still light out. And everybody's kind of like, what, what is going on here? Like they're not in on the joke. And then they're like, oh shit, our radio's gone. Let's turn on the civilian radio. And then the song that we just heard starts playing again, that dead don't die song. And Bill Murray's like, what, what, what is that? That's, that sounds so familiar. And Adam Driver's like, yeah, it's the theme song. And so from that moment on, I was like, okay, all right. I, I see you, Jim Jarmusch. I know what you're doing, you fucking classy son of a bitch. It's, it's good. The whole movie is a fourth wall break, and it is fucking fantastic. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I have to cue that up because I Jar, – Jarmusch is, is, is interesting, but I, 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 I thought it looked good, so I'll have to – Oh, and Tilda, Tilda Swinton plays a Scottish, like, samurai sword-wielding coroner. It's just, I mean, she is just the best in everything she does, and she is just, this is the type of role where, like, how could you say no to this? Awesome. So what have you been watching this week? Have you been filling your brain up with Jack Nicholson like me? N- not necessarily Jack Nicholson. I definitely made a dent in the, the BBS Criterion box set. And uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into the, the meat of the film. Um, so the only things I want to mention, because I, I feel like I watched a lot of stuff that I wasn't a big fan of and I don't want to actually sp- spend the time to give it any any due attention. Um, I, I, I watched a couple of comedies that I hadn't, I'd never seen and, and they, they really weren't that good from different eras. So fuck it. Um, but so I, I, we, um, I have so many DVDs that we haven't seen and it's hard to sort of look at them on the wall and decide like to, and see which ones they are. And so we, I just, I bought a case and I put the discs in them and now it lives downstairs. And so the other day, Melissa was just flipping through it. And I said, I said, Melissa, you can pick whatever, whatever we watch tonight. And so she kind of flipped through and kind of, I guess, on a whim and at random, we watched Deepwater Horizon, which is that Peter Berg movie about what actually happened off the coast of, I, I think it was Louisiana, but somewhere out there in the Gulf of Mexico. And um, like, I, I get what Peter Berg and, and Mark Wahlberg are doing when they make a film. And it's if if you don't know from the from the jump that it's going to be uh, a vehicle for Mark Wahlberg to be a hero, then that's that, you know, there you go that there you have it. Despite knowing all of that, it is a tense, well-made movie about a horrific incident. And I, Melissa and I were in from the beginning. Um, and they, and it's like, it's almost, it's like a paint by numbers movie. Like, you know, you got to get a scene with Mark Wahlberg before he goes onto the ship you got to get a scene where he basically is going to foreshadow exactly what's going to happen when they get out there. And despite all of that, it's, it's really well done. Um, 
Uh, it, great supporting performances from Kurt Russell and John Malkovich, and uh, like a shitload of other people whose names I don't know. But like you would go, you would look and go, oh shit, I know him from something. Um, yeah, I it was gripping. Like really, like I found it like, you know. I kept leaning in. I kept like, oh shit, well, what, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? Because I mean, you know, it was a, obviously a pretty famous, it, actually infamous thing that happened out there and BP took a lot of, you know, a lot of shit for that, you know, rightfully so. But, you know, to see it sort of dramatized and to sort of see people up there, it's, it, it, I, yeah, I don't know, man. It was, it was well-made, well-edited, sound was great. I, I was in. It, it was a compelling movie. Well, that's that's awesome to hear because I all but dismissed it. I mean, I didn't see. Did you see Lone Survivor as well? Because I haven't seen that either. It's see, yeah, I no, I have seen Lone Survivor, and I want to say I don't know what where it was, but that cracked my top ten of that year. Um, oh, really? Yeah. It, again, it's it's you know the kind of movie it's going to be, and I it's that it's that behind enemy lines war movie, right? And and it's and it's and that's a, it's it's him. Uh, it's uh, it's by him. I mean, Mark Wahlberg, uh, Emil Hirsch, Ben Foster, and I forget who the fourth guy is. Um, uh, but he's also like the four dudes, and they're all they're all names. And again, it's like it's it's fucking well shot. Everybody's doing really good stuff in it. And even though it's again, it's a vehicle for Mark Wahlberg to be like a normal guy hero. It still works, man. It really works. And now it's like, I don't want to see Patriots Day, but now I'm kind of like, now I kind of want to see Patriots Day because I'm sure, like, I know the story, but I'm sure I'll be interested. Oh, maybe that's that's great. Maybe I should not be so dismissive of the, the Berg-Wahlberg relationship going forward. I would suggest Lone Survivor of of that bunch first. And if, if you dig it, then I would do deep. Don't do Deepwater Horizon first. Cause if you didn't like it, I could see that deterring you from Lone Survivor. Do that one first. And Lone Survivor sounds like it's clearly the best of, of at least those two. Yes. Yes. I would say so. Awesome. Um, but the, the other thing that we've been watching lately <laughs> is something I kind of heard on a whim and I, it's not a movie, but if you're looking for like a 30 to 40 minute sort of like, turn off your brain there's this game show on netflix called awake have you heard of awake oh i thought you were gonna say the floor is lava but no i have not heard of awake no uh the we tried watching the floor is lava and we were bored instantly um no awake so here's the premise of the show seven people are put into a room and they have to count quarters for 24 hours and then when they're done, they have to do a series of like physical challenges. Uh, and like you can you can you do the challenges, and if you're the best at whatever the challenge is, you move on to the next round. But then if if you're not, you might get kicked out. But then you could also there's this thing called a buyout where you can you can leave and take a little bit of money, or you can like risk it and not get anything. I, I want to say it's like eight or nine episodes. It's just a little like limited miniseries, but like there haven't been any new game shows that I've felt like, you know, yeah, you know, like when was the last who wants to be a millionaire? You know, like when was the like when was the last time like, like a game show, a new one, like kind of captured the country? And I'm not saying this is gonna do it, but as original game shows go, I, I it was really fun. Like I we probably watched one a night for a couple of nights and yeah. 
That's a cool concept, man. I kind of, I definitely dig that. As far as yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Like game shows, have they've, they've never really been my, my thing. I mean, I had a couple that I liked as a kid. We had Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in Britain as well, and we also had uh, one called The Crystal Maze. I don't know if that made it over here or if you guys had your own version of that at all. Richard O'Brien uh, used to host it. Oh God, that's from, funny. Oh yeah, no, and he was, he was a great, really great TV personality. See, I but, remember uh, watching. Sorry. No, no, the other one that I I I don't know how cuz I don't have like normal TV. I don't know how it's been doing, but I heard Rob Lowe talk about his with the weird like crane arm thing. You hear about oh, that? I don't even know what it's called. I've seen I think it might just be called that. Yeah, it's like a giant crane machine. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I I don't know much about it. Um yeah, all, all I was going to say is like I totally grew up what like watching it with my grandma and stuff and like all the like the old one like card sharks and press your luck and family feud and like when when they when they put supermarket sweep on prime again for like two weeks we would go to sleep watching really shitty old game shows so that was fun that's awesome but but most of what i've watched this week has either been shitty or i'm saving it for the the meat of the episode so give me give me one of the shitty ones then just for just for the sake of posterity van wilder worst Oh, had you not seen Van Wilder before? No. No, that movie is properly shit. Yeah, and and has aged. Whew, ter- oh, like, I, I, I'm I know sure. we, we talk about comedies from the 80s and, like, how those have aged bad. But, like, comedies from, like, 99 to 04? Ooh. Man, do you know what? Oh, oh, okay. Definitely. And, Liz like, and I tried to Liz and I tried to rewatch American Pie about a year ago. I don't even think we made it thirty minutes in. It's well, ooh, and, and woof. Like it's the, rough, dude. Like the biggest set piece of that movie is filming a girl undress and pleasure herself. Like that was overlooked then. Uh, I don't know how. Uh that has aged terribly. <laughs> yeah, <sighs> it's uh, not not great. And and so, you know yeah. Ryan, who is it, who is it Van Wilder is that Ryan Reynolds yeah 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 I'm who I'm clearly, glad he was able to weather that he's clearly only ever played himself yeah I yeah. would really like to see him tackle something with a bit of emotional gravitas to it yeah yeah that would be nice well well so per, speaking of emotional gravitas let's get into recommends because. Um, We'll tease it a little bit, but but next week uh, we're jumping to 1980, and if you don't mind, uh, we are going to be discussing The Elephant Man, um, which is a David Lynch film that uh, I haven't seen. And so I was looking through his uh, IMDb, and I realized that besides The Elephant Man, I hadn't seen Dune, and I hadn't seen my recommend, The Straight Story. Wow. Yeah, that, that is movie, a fantastic film. It had me from the fucking jump. Um, and really simply, if you haven't seen it, it's basically, it's about this guy, Alvin Strait, uh, based off of a real a real person who um, was in his late 70s and, uh, and basically finds out that his brother has had a stroke and they, they've had a falling out and they haven't seen each other in about 10 years. And so... Uh, he decided, and by the way, sorry, uh, Alvin Strait is played by Richard Farnsworth in his last role 
uh, an Oscar-nominated role, um, and something that basically uh, the film itself didn't. But I, I didn't realize that after this movie, he was in so much pain from cancer that he killed himself. That was uh, totally unaware of that um, until I did a little bit of research, and that that blew me away. Um, but uh, uh, so he he decides that he's going to rig up a trailer to his his riding lawnmower and go from uh iowa to wisconsin to, to see his brother um and that's really about it and then it's sort of just the people that he meets on the way um and it's it's a simple movie uh but he is so charming and captivating and it, and he's got so much to say and it, it's just it's just these interesting set pieces for richard farnsworth to talk to people he doesn't know and just give these revelatory monologues. Um, the one where he's he's talking to this this guy. There's a moment in the movie uh, where he almost gets in an accident because he's going downhill and it's, it's it's a fucking riding lawnmower dragging a trailer that probably weighs more than the lawnmower. And um, he's staying with these people and he goes to this bar and he he relives or he sort of you know gives this um, this speech about something that happened when he was in World War II. That's just like fucking heartbreaking and like it's it's just he's just so good in it and i uh you know whenever i think about the the oscars in 99 it's you know that kevin spacey was up for american beauty and i know we hate him now but you know like that was a role and like fucking russell crowe in the insider and denzel and the hurricane and i remember always seeing richard farnsworth in this and just knowing the briefest of plot synopsis i was like that's stupid. And now that I've seen it, I kind of feel like a real piece of shit, but I'm so glad that I have because it's, it's great. And it's, and we'll talk more about this next week. I probably, when we talk about David Lynch, but, um, also really well directed, like just very simple, but, but, but elegant and, and poetic. And I, man, what a, what a great thing. And I didn't know, I knew it was, uh, I think I knew that it was G rated, but I didn't know that it was on Disney plus. I was like, Oh, perfect. It's so easy to just pop on and i what a treat what a treat the straight story i was i was gonna save this line for our our elephant man episode next week but seeing as though we're here talking david lynch a little bit it is i think one of the greatest mic drops in film history because for years lynch was getting shit about you know, can you just make a story that makes sense? Can you make a movie that we don't have to, like, beat our heads against a brick wall until something falls out? You know, I don't think anybody ever said to him, hey, can you make a straight story? But that's, he's like, fine, if you want me to make something that, that makes sense and is more conventional, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it better than than most people could ever attempt or ever hope that they could attempt to. It, <laughs> it is a fabulous fucking mic drop. And, yeah, he, not only did he make a G-rated movie, he got Disney to pay for it. Of all, yep. which is I just think is just the greatest like middle finger to all of his critics throughout the years. <laughs> I I love it. I am head over heel. I don't love all that David Lynch has done, but as as a man, I think he is. I I'm in love with him. I think he's great. Yeah, yeah, fascinating character. So yeah, uh, like wholeheartedly recommend the Straight Story. And if you have Disney Plus, boom, just do it. It's there you go. Yeah, you're paying so, for Ian, it anyway. You may as well get your money's worth. Exactly. So, uh, what do you what do you got this week for a recommend, there, buddy? Well, I don't. You mentioned the the BBS Criterion box set, which I I don't have, but I do have about four of the seven films that are in it. So I made the effort to watch uh, at least a couple of those. Um, 
And my recommend is one of them, The King of Marvin Gardens. So Five Easy Pieces, as we're about to talk about, is a Bob Rafelson film, and, and so is this one. This is, They did this uh, a couple years later, him and Jack Nicholson. You're, you're shaking your head. You watched this one too, didn't you? No, it was, it was oh, like the, the one I didn't get to. I just, oh, I couldn't, I, just, I couldn't tell what that sigh was. I didn't no, know. No, I just that, ran out of time. Was a, I was, I was hoping yeah. to be able to give more back to this conversation. Yeah. No, no worries. It just, I saw, I saw the look and I was like, hang on. Is that a look of, oh God, he's about to talk about this fucking movie or the no, disappointment no, no. that you, you didn't see it. But either way, it's, um, again, Rafelson and Jack pairing up again. And, uh, we've also got Ellen Burstyn in there. Um, Bruce Dern, uh, Julia Ann Robinson, very sad story about her. She only made about three films and died a couple of years after King of Marvin Gardens in a, in an apartment fire, which is a shame because she's, she's great in this movie. She could have had, I think a, a pretty good career. Uh, also, uh, Scatman Crothers has a couple yep. of scenes in it who would of course later go on to work with Jack Nicholson and a couple other things, uh, the fortune and more famously, uh, the shining, um, but this is a just a little, little curious piece. The you know the jumping straight to the end of it. The end of it kind of reminded me of the end of Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa, which is a bit of a spoiler if you've seen kind of one and not the other. But the ends the ends of these two things are very similar, and I couldn't find anything with Neil Jordan referencing this movie. But they, I'm I'm kind of curious if one did inform the other. But uh, Jack Nicholson is a. Uh, radio personality, kind of like an NPR type. He does uh, a lot of spoken word stuff, and he reads stories and, and things like that on the radio. It opens with a fantastic shot of his face kind of half in shadow, and he's telling this story uh, that we later find out is is just that because his grandfather is very much still alive, and he's living with him. But he's telling this story about how him and his older brother kind of let their grandfather die, and uh, then we then we do actually meet his brother who calls him out to Atlantic City. Uh, he's in jail and he's kind of a, you know, an opportunist. He's always looking for the next scam or the next scheme. He's played by by Bruce Dern and uh, he's convinced his brother to help him buy this island off, you know, somewhere around the Hawaiian Islands and open up a casino resort out there. But he's also in a lot of trouble himself. He's got, you know, he owes money to the Scatman Crothers character, and uh, there are these two women in his life. We later find out that Ellen Burstyn's character was uh, a prostitute, and uh, it's her stepdaughter, who's played by uh, Julia Ann Robinson, who Jack Nicholson kind of has some designs on, and there's a very tragic thing that happens later in the movie uh, between that sort of foursome. Um, but shot really, really well. It's uh, another film that, that Laszlo Kovacs shot. Of course, he shot Easy Rider. He also shot Five Easy Pieces as well. So some really, really beautiful uh, cinematography in it. Kind of a slow burn, but uh, you know, when you're working through this BBS box set, you'll find that, that most of them are. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about some of those movies in a, in a sec. Yeah, I'm I really am. I'm bummed. This was I I pulled out a few and I I yeah I I I just didn't find the time to do it. I I watched um, it's not the '70s, but I watched uh, the Border, '82 uh, Jack Nicholson movie with um, uh, uh, Harvey Keitel, which we can talk about when we talk about Nicholson. But um, yeah, I just I bum bummed. That was the one I didn't get to. 
it's it's worth it. I'm based on I because I don't know how you feel about five easy pieces. I'm assuming this is your first watch. It's my second watch of five easy pieces. But based on how much you like five easy pieces, I think will inform what you're gonna think of the King of Marvin Gardens. It's honestly it's worth it just for the first ten minutes and the last five minutes. And Ellen Burstyn's performance, she is fucking. Ellen Burstyn is. I I don't know that I've ever seen her in anything she's not been fantastic in. Yeah, she's she's great she's great um well let's let's get into that conversation about five easy pieces um so uh obviously as we mentioned already it's uh, this is directed by bob rafelson uh written by him and carol eastman although he does give a lot of the credit to her uh for sort of uh fixing up the movie uh she went under the pseudonym adrian joyce i tried to look up why i don't not really a reason for it i don't think just yeah, there's there's very little information on her. There's, uh, I mean, they both Jack and and Bob. They said some really nice things about her in the obituary that I found. But yeah, there's really not a ton out there about her. So our cast, we got Jack Nicholson playing Bobby Dupee, Karen Black playing Rayette. That is his uh, girlfriend? <laughs> Question mark. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see here. We also got uh, Lois Smith playing Tita. That is his sister. We have. Uh, Ralph Waite playing Carl, that is his brother. Um, Susan Onspa playing Catherine, that's the lady out there on the estate who's kind of with Carl and at times not. Um, we've got Billy Green Bush playing Elton, that's uh, Jack Nicholson's friend and co-worker. We have Fanny Flagg who plays Stoney, that would be Elton's wife. Um, uh, Tony Basil playing Terry and Helena, uh, I haven't had trouble with a name in a while, Kalia... Callian Neot, I have no idea. Helena, we'll just go with Helena, her first name, <laughs> who plays Palm. They are two uh, hitchhikers who um, Jack Nicholson and Karen Black pick up along their way up to the Puget Sound. Haha, <laughs> that was cool. Um, uh, and then uh, I, I guess I guess I want to throw out, you know, Marlena McGuire as Twinkie and Sally Ann Struthers as Betty, the bowling alley girls. Um, and I, uh, also we have William Chalet who plays uh, his dad. Anybody else you want to give some love to? Did you did you hit Lorna Thayer as the waitress? Because that would be uh, the only I other did, person I would call. I out. did not. I did not. I mean, yeah, she's the waitress. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's she nails her twenty seconds, I guess. Um, so uh, Rafelson has no other movies in the book. Uh, in terms of accolades, this was up for four Academy Awards. It was up for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, and Original Screenplay. Um, so the the five films up that year for Best Picture were Patton, which won, uh, Five Easy Pieces, Love Story, Nicholas and Alexandria, and MASH. Um, I, I haven't seen all of those. Um, I do know that Love Story is is dog shit, uh, and, and Patton's okay. So those are my Yeah, you were you were talking last week about potentially watching MASH. Uh, again. Again. The, I have such I high hopes for the time. week ahead. <laughs> it just other things come up. I mean, I, I you know, it's in the book, so at some point we'll talk about it. Yeah, no, I'm excited to get back to a, an Altman, especially after uh <laughs> after, after how after how uh, unimpressed you were with Nashville. And actually uh, Altman's going to come up here in a second on one of my lists. So I'm, I'm curious to get Ooh. your reaction to which one it is. 
Okay, well, let's get through these accolades here. Uh, so the Golden Globes, it was also up for Best Picture, Director, and Actor. Karen Black won Best Actress and tied, uh, I believe, with Helen Hayes for Airport, and it was also nominated for Screenplay. It picked up DGA and WGA noms. Uh, the National Board of Review put it in its top 10. Karen Black also won Best Supporting Actress there. Hey, the Kansas City Film Critics gave this Best Picture tied with Patton that year. Um, and hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was in the year 2000. Uh, Apocalypse Now was also inducted that year. And a little film that came out in 1990 that we may or may not be discussing in two weeks. Oh, hot shit. I love it. Um, this movie is not on the IMDb Top 250. It has a critical score on Rotten Tomatoes of 88 with an audience score of 84. So when it comes to reviews, I feel like... I want it because I get because you're right. I had not seen this movie before this watch, so kind of knowing that knowing it's it's uh, it's it's standing in in film and how people appreciate it. I aggressively went after trying to find uh, a negative review, and I found one I think written after the fact by David Denby from the New Yorker um, that I I, I want to read because I I just I feel like. It, it, there are there are I feel like there are definite sides at how you can view this movie. So if you can, it'll indulge me for one second, I want to read part of his. He says, Nicholson's Bobby, restless, sexually ravenous, and disgusted with himself, is the kind of screw up who can't resist telling acid truths, even though he's burning himself more than anyone else, and he has some classic riffs. But overall, the movie written by Carol Eastman is scrappy. Raffleson shows temperamental flair, but the action is poorly staged and flatly lit. Karen Black, as Bobby's devoted waitress girlfriend, is clearly not enough for him, and the intellectuals whom he tells off at home are too ridiculous to be taken seriously. The movie has more anger than it knows what to do with. That's its fascination and its weakness, too. Now, um, as I was going through the supplemental materials on the Criterion, I also got this... Um, there was this quote from Ebert that I also wanted to read because I think it, because I th that that I believe was written in 2010. This was written about its first viewing. So let me read this. This is from Ebert. It is difficult to explain today how much Bobby DePee meant to the film's first audiences. I was at the New York Film Festival for the premiere of Five Easy Pieces, and I remember the explosive laughter, the deep silences, the stunned attention as the final shot seemed to continue forever, and then the ovation. We'd had a revelation. This was the direction American movies should take, into idiosyncratic characters, into dialogue with an ear for the vulgar and the literate, into a plot free to surprise us about the characters, into an existential ending not required to be happy. Five Easy Pieces was a fusion of the personal cinema of John Cassavetes and the new indie movement that was tentatively emerging. And I, th I, I wanted to read both of those because... Viewing this movie now and and appreciating the history of not just five easy pieces, but of of the BBS in general, I think is really important to keep in mind as we as we dive into the film. Oh no, I one hundred percent agree. And I, I think this also made Roger Ebert's great movies list, and I think he did in fact end up calling it the best film of nineteen seventy. I could see that. So, Adam, I'm gonna ask you. Do you love lists? I, I love lists. 
I do as well. I love list. And I love land. Well, I like last week, I do have, if you'll indulge me, I do have two lists. I'll start with uh, a slightly more general one, and one that I was actually really pleasantly surprised to, to find. I, I think I've mentioned both on and off this show how much of a, a massive fan I now am of uh, WTF, Mark Marin's podcast. Going mm-hmm. back through the archive, I'm probably listening to about half a dozen a week. Um, <laughs> It's really, I, I, I really do appreciate it, not just because it's Mark Maron, but all the, the stories and things like that. And I'm finding things in common with people that I didn't think that I would have. Like Terry Crews, the Terry Crews episode, like, shook me. You mentioned that. Like, you, I've, I've yeah, heard you really, say that before. Yeah, really, really shook me. So I'm, like, finding things in common with people I never thought that I would and trying to expand my mind through, you know, other people's lives. It's been fucking fantastic. I can't say enough about how much I love his show. Anyway, he did a top 10 for the Criterion. Going through, you know, people go through the closet, they do the yep. top 10, and yeah, Indeed. I, I dig that. I think that's really fun. So here is Mark Marin's top 10 criterions. At number 10, we have The Big Chill, and he said, uh, this made boomers cool, though that didn't last long, <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. I don't know. Have you seen The Big Chill? No, I, I, I do own it. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it either. Uh, number nine is a Fassbender film, Veronica Voss. I still have not seen a Fassbender. He's another one of those directors that we, we definitely need to address in season three. Yep, I would agree. Uh, number eight is a fucking great Brian De Palma film, Blowout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number seven is Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned that a while ago. Yeah, y- yeah, y- yeah, yeah, fuck Polanski, but that movie is... All kinds of umptuous. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very, very good. Yeah. Uh, number six, you'll appreciate this as well. A little film from Stanley Kubrick called The Killing. Damn right. That movie is yeah. fucking awesome. Yeah, it really is. And then at number five, so that it's relevant, we have five easy pieces. He called it Nicholson really at his best. Uh, number four is a movie that we've tackled on this show. It was a tough one. Straw Dogs. Yeah, that was a that's a tough that's a tough movie. Yep. Number three is what I think is a movie that absolutely changed and rewired my brain is Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. Number two, here here comes the Altman and a movie that I've heard heard him talk about quite a bit. He calls it a celebration of life. It is Shortcuts. Oh man, I I, I was too young when I watched that. The only time I've seen it, so yeah, I, I that one needs a rewatch. Yeah, the amount the amount that he's talking about it in various shows, because like I said, I'm all over the place through his archive, but it comes up every once in a while. I'm feeling like I just need to blind buy that one, and I I probably will. <laughs> At, and then number one is such a great great choice. Another film we've covered on this show, The Third Man. Ah, uh, yep, indeed. A, a solid list. I mean, I haven't seen a couple of them, but solid list. I, I I will call out the uh, the mostly uh, American list that that is. I love to hear a little more out of the country, but but a good list, a good list of films. I, I mean, Fastbender's in there, but yeah, I, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I mean, if I were to make my top ten criterion, yeah, it would probably be mostly mostly American as well, with the with a Tarkovsky and a Bergman thrown in there. That would see that's uh, yeah that would be I, I mean and I I would probably get a Kurosawa in there too personally. Oh yeah, that's yeah, good point. 
Um, so here's here's my second list for this All episode. Right. This is from the Hollywood Reporter. This is put together by a critic named Stephen Dalton, uh, about 2017 or so. This is his not necessarily saying these are the top 10 Jack Nicholson films, but the top 10 Jack Nicholson performances. And at okay. number 10, we have a we have about Schmidt, which I finally saw. I, it, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't call it Alexander Payne's best, but I definitely I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and there's actually I apparently I didn't know this until I was doing research for Five Easy Pieces. There was a scene cut from About Schmidt, which is a callback to Five Easy Pieces with the whole waitress no substitution scene. So yeah, that was, re- that's a shame that that got cut. I read that too. <laughs> Uh, number nine is again a, a movie that I went looking for to watch this week and couldn't find is The Pledge, which was directed by Sean Penn. I, I've heard I've heard good things about that movie. See, I've done I've done the other one that Sean Penn directed in him. I've seen The Crossing Guard, but not The Pledge. Okay. And The Crossing Guard is is pretty good. It's got Angelica Houston and, and David Morrison in it as well. A solid cast. All right. Uh, number eight, you're probably not going to like, is Batman. I, I I get it. It's iconic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, number seven is Terms of Endearment, which I have not seen. I, ha- I haven't either. Number six is The Shining, which I respect so much, considering he got a Razzie nomination for that. It is. It I think it's a really misunderstood performance. Well, I I'm gonna come back when this list is done. I want to bring up something. So yeah, keep going. All right, all right. Uh, numbers, number five is an obvious one, and I don't know, in some people's mind, probably this should be number one, is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I am surprised that's not higher. Yep. Uh, number four is Chinatown. Okay, yeah. Number three is a new favorite of mine, and I've mentioned it, I can't remember what episode on, but a, a few episodes back is The Last Detail. You ha- yeah, that's, that is one of those 70s ones of his I have not seen. I uh, I actually just bought the the uh, thanks to you calling out uh, indicator. I just bought their release. I'm anxiously awaiting that to show up. Uh, number two is another movie that I've actually heard Mark Marin talk about quite a bit. Is Carnal Knowledge again one that I desperately tried to find to watch for this episode and I uh, just didn't have the time to. Yeah. So you you haven't mentioned one. I, uh, number one I, I, has to be. It has to be. Five easy pieces. I mean, so this, is, look, just... this is this is just one. This is just one man. This is Stephen Dalton saying that he thinks the best Jack Nicholson performance is Five Easy Pieces. No, no. I, okay, I, I'm not going to argue. I, what I'm pissed about is that a few good men did not get mentioned by you just now. By by me. But well, I from, I didn't make by, this list. By you from this guy that this guy doesn't believe that that is one of his 10 best performances. I honestly, I would, I would really, I would probably of the ones that I have seen. So I can't speak to the pledge or carnal knowledge or terms of endearment, but I would, I would happily bump Batman or about Schmidt to get a few good men on the list. Cause that so, is just a, that is a fuck you. I don't give a shit performance. So th- that that kind of leads into this. I so I, uh, I I follow on Facebook a couple of the podcasts I listen to, and there was this they they did this poll recently, uh, recently enough that I remember. Uh, so they did this thing of what what would be Jack Nicholson's Mount Rushmore, and the results probably won't surprise you, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on them. So the the four that were voted on that made it were The Shining, 
One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, A Few Good Men, and Chinatown. And I'm wondering, like, if you could assemble the Mount Rushmore of Jack Nicholson, is that the, is, are those the four that you would pick? Or would you make, would you make some kind of an, an amendment to it? Well, I, I would say The Shining, as much as I just said it's a misunderstood performance and I like it, uh, and I know he's not in this movie I'm about to say for very long, but it made such a lasting impression on me, I would bump The Shining and put Easy Rider on there. I, I adore him in Easy Rider, and when I still cry, I'd say 9 out of 10 times whenever he dies in that film, it, it tears me up. I, I think I might... I might agree with you on that. Well, well, I want to talk about I want to talk about him in this movie. So let's let's maybe we'll come back to this Mount Rushmore. Well, we'll see. Um, that may be a good thing to to bookend the show with. Yeah. So, um, Ian, do you mind giving us a little rundown on what yeah. happens in Five Easy Pieces? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, in Northern California, I think it's specifically Bakersfield. Uh, Bobby Dupree. He's working with his friend Alton on the oil rigs. He's got a a girlfriend at home that he seems to have a little bit of intimacy issues with. He's also, uh, they hint that he comes from a slightly privileged and talented background. Uh, he finds out that his old man has had a couple of strokes and, uh, he makes the trek up from Bakersfield up to Vancouver Island to go see his dad. Uh, there he meets the Catherine character, uh, and starts a sort of very small affair with her. Uh, we also get the information that uh, Rayette is pregnant, uh, so he's dealing with that as well, and also reckoning with the fact that he hasn't been home in so long, and ultimately it ends in quite a very emotional, converse, one-sided conversation uh, with his dad, and a uh, somewhat ambiguous and very bleak, in some people's minds anyway, very bleak ending. And of course, along the way, there's a couple of really big scenes. The scenes... You know, we, we should probably reckon with those first. I mean, the two things that people are going to remember about this movie are the no substitutions waitress scene and, of course, the very famous playing the piano on the freeway on the back of that moving truck. So so I, <laughs> I as I was thinking about this movie and how how we might want to discuss it. I uh, the movie's called Five Easy Pieces. I decided to come up with a segment called Five Famous Set Pieces, uh, basically talking about what I think are possibly the five uh, the five iconic kind of moments in the movie. Um, and and you just mentioned two of them for sure. Um, so where do you where do you want to jump? Where do you want to jump to, my friend? Well, I'd like to I'd like to try and do this one. In, in somewhat of a, a sequential order, if that's okay with you, I I've, I gotta say, I'll, I will start by saying that I saw this film for the first time about 12 years ago. I was on a huge, you know, new Hollywood kick, you know, that late 60s leading into the early 70s. I had read uh, most of Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, that very, very great book that, that details this piece of history. I still have not seen the documentary, um... But I'm, you know, as we've talked about on the show, I am obsessed with the 70s. I think we have a sort of mutual understanding that that, that is the best decade in the history of film so far. Uh, I don't, yeah. I don't know where you stand if you're if you're with me on that or not. I don't want to speak for you. Obviously, I haven't I haven't watched everything that I probably should have from the 70s. But again, it, 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 hearkening back to our Nashville episode, and I, I, I don't I don't mean to make everything about the Oscars, but that year. 
the five films nominated for Best Picture in 75 were One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, and Nashville. And that's just one fucking year. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so no, I... I, yeah, I, I, it's I, I would agree with that. I mean, I'm I'm 70s obsessed. I'm sure there have been times where I've thrown out when we've been looking for new episodes. I keep throwing out 70s episodes, and I'm sure you've had to remind me. Hey, let's let's maybe do a different decade. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, going back to that, yeah, it was about 12 years ago that I first saw it, and again, way too young to sort of grapple with the themes of this film, his characterization. Uh, definitely not emotionally mature enough to, to handle or, or an, an, an understand where this man is coming from and, and what it is that, that has either gone wrong in his life or what he perceives to have gone wrong or what he has rejected. Um, this time around, really, I really, I found it. You know what I mean? I really saw it, understood it, took it in, was moved to tears in places by it. So I'll so this is my first view of the movie, um, and I'll 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 be honest with you. It's been a long time since we've done a film where I've I've come into the episode not knowing how what my answer is going to be at the end. Oh, that's great! I'm excited by that. I have a I have a task. I have a, so, I have a job to do now. So. Yeah, so I I I'm gonna I want to follow your lead as we go through right. this. So the opening opens with that that great those great shots of them working on the oil rigs, which, which I I love. That was one of my first notes. Is I love watching, I love watching these guys who or I should say women as well. Just anybody who has a a trade, you know what I mean. I love watching people at work. I get yeah. I, honestly I go to you know when we you know we're still in you know the midst of of pandemic uh as of the recording of this and you know when i did go to sushi restaurants and i would sit there at the sushi bar i just i would get lost in in watching people do something a, a trade or a craft or something that they're really good at and same with these these oil rig sequences i'm just i'm, I'm in it right from the for this this go around anyway right from the get-go i'm in and i i love the dynamic between him and Rayette, those those scenes, especially that first scene between the two of them, he comes in, she's playing "Stand by Your Man," the uh, Tammy Wynette song. There's a there's a handful of Tammy Wynette songs uh, throughout the film. Yeah, and they're I, a little I, I, too I was, on the nose for me. A, a little bit, but I will say, you know, however you feel about Karen Black's performance, she does actually have a pretty good voice. Oh no, I think she's I think she's fine, and I. I don't. I'm not surprised by the uh, the accolades that she received over the the period of of this film, um, and I do I do think she has a, a a good singing voice. And it's funny. I I I'm pretty unfamiliar with Karen Black. The only other thing I've seen her in was was I watched um, Jack Nicholson's uh, uh, directorial debut, uh, Drive. He said, um, which I I watched a couple days before I watched Five Easy Pieces, and she she's in that. Um, so talk to me about that really quickly. What did you think of his directorial debut? Um, so I watched, uh, I, so I watched drive. He said, and a safe place. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen a safe place. Don't. I, I have not. 
No. It's oh, it's, it's a not dump, good? it's a dumpster fire. It's fucking oh, so stupid. Um but but drive he said is interesting. Um there's it, it definitely okay, so here's here's a good comparison. You know how in this movie, uh, they're going, they're driving, they're along their way, and they pick up Palm and uh, whatever the fuck her name is, um, Terry. They pick them up along the way, and basically, we get Palm is basically, in my opinion, inserted into the movie to just uh, talk about how shitty everything is and how man is destroying the earth, and and it's okay because it's not the point of the movie. It, we're not focusing on this, and it's just an interesting character that we meet along the way. Um, drive, he said is, is very much a lot about like the happenings of the early seventies and, and protesting Vietnam. And, uh, and, and it's very funny in a way. It's also about somebody who has a clear skill. Uh, however, in drive, he said it's about a basketball player, not a pianist. And, uh, what, what he's going to do when he gets out of college, is he going to go pro or if he's not, what is he going to do with his life? Um, and, and Karen Black is in, in that too. And, um, Karen Black is not Southern. So I actually think, I think the portrayal of, of Rayette in this movie is, um, uh, it's a really sophisticated, like sophisticated in the sense that like, there's a lot of work being done by Karen Black to, to do this character. She's, she's not, I mean, even from just the one other thing I've seen her in, she, she definitely is a, was a talented actress. Well, you've, you've seen her in, uh, Nashville and, um, She's oh, an Easy Riders. She's a she's one of the prostitutes at the end of uh, Easy Rider. Oh well, that I didn't know. And you're yes, you're right. She is yes. She of course yeah. is in Nashville. Um, I, yeah, I, so I her, her singing voice. Yeah. yeah. Her, so her singing voice definitely landed her the part in Nashville. I mean, I think she only does one song or two that I can remember in Nashville. But they're both. I mean, they're both solid. I think we we kind of clashed on whether or not that felt like padding the runtime or not. But I mean, she does, she does fantastic work in both not, this and not, Nashville. We're not talking about Nashville. No, we're not. Uh, <laughs> so I just, their, their chemistry right from the outset. And like I, I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the intimacy issues, like he would rather, you know, he, he gives her a hard time about singing, gives her a hard time about playing that record again. He says, if you play that thing one more time, I'm going to melt it down into hairspray. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she, she says she'll do, she's so desperate for his love and affection. She says to him, I'll do anything you want me to do as long as you tell me that you love me. And there's, and she does that several times over the course of the film. And he's always... He's, he's always finding some way to duck it or avoid it. And he says, no, nah, I'd rather hear you sing again or something like yeah. that. Yep. I, that's, that's one of my, it's one of my favorite parts about the subtext of this character is the intimacy issues, which we, we find out, you know, later in the film when he goes home, why he has those. And I mean, we can only imagine what the childhood must've been like, but it, it definitely must've been something that was not driven by any kind of affection. At least I mean, as, I think, as how I interpreted it. No, I think yeah, I think you can. I think you can surmise that. I think you can. You can make a logical leap to to get there. I I, I was you know the the beginning parts of the movie. It's it's clearly it's it's a rocky relationship, and and Rayette is is constantly putting herself out there and constantly just just wanting affection from him and. It's so interesting because I, I clearly like the opening that opening scene with them. We get that it's not it's not perfect, but you know it it is what it is, and, and you know maybe it's just that scene or that day. 
the the scene at the bowling alley though is was really interesting because you know I'm watching this and it's like why why is he getting so upset about a bowling loss like like as somebody who in high school I used to go bowling a lot it was something I really enjoyed doing and I I I took Melissa bowling with me a lot and I granted I haven't gone I've gone recently but I was more likely to get mad at myself than mad at Melissa or anybody else for doing bad. And this idea, I, I, it's so, I, not, try, not to spoil the ending, but he is looking for every reason, any and every reason to be mad at her and to not want to be with her. And like, sure, <laughs> if I had to constantly hear Tammy Wynette, that'd probably get on my nerves. But like the the bowling thing is so it's it's such a clear-cut example of somebody planning his escape route, planning on not being with this person. Um, and it, I just it just felt like a really it was that that was a really interesting scene. It, it, it yeah, th- this movie for me teeter-tottered a lot between like oh, I'm not, I'm not in it, and I'm in it, and I'm not in it, and I'm in it. And the bowling scene kept me, like, I was, I was really interested. And then, like, I, I get, I, and then just, the, like, the two women, and, like, like, they're hitting on him, but are they? And, like, oh, you're from TV, and you're wearing a wig. And I, I, I was just kind of, like, baffled. Like, what, now what's happening? And, and this is a, it's a straightforward movie in terms of, like, the overall narrative, like, like, if you were to describe it in like 10 seconds, you probably could. But like some, if you were to talk about some of the scenes specifically, like the latter half of the bowling scene is just a, uh, uh, what? I was like, Oh, what the, <laughs> what's happening? Yeah. I don't, I don't know that we necessarily need that interaction, but the bowling scene in general, and then a couple of scenes that follow it with his interactions with Stoney and Elton, you you start to get the feeling of because we don't quite know his background up to that point, but yeah, this film also definitely speaks about class and people and 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 mixing people from different backgrounds of different classes. Like he does, you you do start to get an air of oh shit, he these are his friends, these are the people that he's closest with. This is his coworker, this is his girlfriend who will find out is pregnant, and he does he's he's with them so that he has someone to lord over someone to 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 look down on yeah and it's you know and it's 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 so easy in a movie like this or 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 in real life to you know to on the from the outside see that a relationship is toxic and not working and be like just leave um and it's it's tough i mean i i you know in the we don't clear we don't see the whole history of Bobby and Rayette and I have to imagine that part of the reason why she's sticking around is because of the pregnancy wanting to make it work wanting to you know have a a family and and make that all work um I remember a little a, not too much later on but later on there's a very very short scene where Rayette and Bobby are over at Elton's house and their their son's there and like climbing over everything and like this child being near Jack Nicholson is just like, you can see him just like, like it's a sickness that's climbing on him and, and wanting to just distance himself from it and the thought of it as, as much as possible. 
and yeah, it's and, not even it's not even his commitment, but the thought of a commitment like that, you know, being around somebody else's commitment is it is yeah, you can see that it's genuinely sickening to him. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's repulsive and he wants it as far away from him as I can. This is I you know, I don't that that list that I mentioned earlier, uh I I'm starting to not have so much of a problem with this particular critic putting five easy pieces at number one, even if it's just in a sort of historical context, because this is the beginning of, and I'm going to pull back and look at this in a slightly more macro view now, is that this is the beginning of a great run of quote-unquote anti-heroes or very angsty, very unlikable performance uh, performing performances of unlikable characters from Jack Nicholson so I'll take just I I also watched um in this week preparing for this episode I also watched The Passenger the uh Michelangelo Antonioni film yeah uh that Nicholson actually I guess he owns the rights to that film uh you know he he considers it one of the best things that he has ever done and he didn't want it to be mistreated and I think uh MGM ended up giving him or I I read two conflicting things either MGM gave it to him uh, because of another project that went south, or he did just buy it outright and then allowed Sony to redistribute it uh, a few years back. That is a fascinating piece of film and a really stunning performance. It's incredibly direct. Now, I know you said you'd only uh, only seen one other Antonioni film. I think it was The Red Desert. You said yeah. you weren't that impressed, if I'm remembering right. Hey. The last... The last shot of this film the wonder that happens at the end of this film is fucking magnificent it like shot into my top five wonders of all time it's <laughs> it's one of the most breathtaking things i've ever seen and it's an well, incredible performance from from nicholson maria schneider from uh, last tango is in it as well she's mm-hmm. great um i also watched uh, as well as like i mentioned uh, marvin gardens i also watched his collaboration with his very good friend and neighbor Marlon Brando I watched the Missouri Breaks which he is fantastic in but this is Brando way the fuck off the deep end it's directed by Arthur Arthur Penn who very famously did Bonnie and Clyde like he just he gave up he's like I can't control Brando I don't give a fuck let him do whatever he wants to do like he does his accents are all over the place he does Irish for most of it and then decides to give up on it and do something else it's it's a shame because everybody else in this movie's got Harry Dean Stanton, Randy Quaid, everybody else is doing their best, and it's like Brando is going out of his way to like sabotage them at like every opportunity, which is a shame because it is it's a genuinely great forgotten western that's on on Prime right now. It's got an amazing John Williams score, and like I said, Nicholson is fucking fabulous in it, especially his interactions with with Harry Dean Stanton. I guess well, they were quite close as well. What I was going to say is, you know, we that's that list uh, that you mentioned of of um, Jack Nicholson roles, like like about Schmidt as a movie is okay, but I think what I like about like I think when we think of Jack Nicholson, we we hit some of the big ones, right? He's in he he won for one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and he gets he gets to kind of be all over the place because he's pretending to be manic, and then like as good as it gets, again he's playing somebody who has obsessive compulsive disorder and, or things like the departed or things like Chinatown or the shining and, and, or a few good men. And I I love those performances, but you know, the range within each of those movies isn't too big. 
right? What I, the thing about him in this movie is he is, his emotional spectrum is so huge. And what he gets to do in the movie is all over the place. He gets to be intimate. He gets to be bland. He gets to have uh, the scene in traffic. And then he gets to have the scene with his dad. And like, you know, I, as an actor, I'm, I'm, you know, part of me wants to hope that reading this, he was like, look at all this shit I get to do. Cause there's so many, there's so many different set pieces, so many different scenes and, and characters he gets, to, he gets to interact with. And, and I, I, I don't know that I would call this his best performance, but it is definitely, from what I've seen, his most well-rounded performance. And it's great to, to be able to see Crazy Jack, but then also, like, Crying Jack. Like, again, I'd say outside of About Schmidt, I don't know that I've ever really seen sad Jack Nicholson. And that scene with his dad is is great. I don't, again, I, I'm not trying to jump the, the gun, but, but oh, no, talking fine. We can, him. we can go all over the place, but yeah, that scene he, that he apparently wrote himself and Rafelson actually got into an argument with him about, no, you should cry. Cause he didn't want to. That was he a like, fun, that was a fun interview to watch. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. That Rafelson was, uh, being like, you have to cry. You have to cry. And it was like, we have two days of shooting left. You got to do a scene where you cry. Nicholson's all pissed. And like, did you hear about how they filmed it too? Cause that was great. Oh no! Tell me. So, so the day comes and they're out there, and um, Rafelson was trying. So at this point, Rafelson's just just wants the scene. So he's, it's it's just the guy who plays the dad, Nicholson, and Rafelson out there. Rafelson is holding the boom over his shoulder, not watching the scene. Hits sound, hits record, and he's and the scene happens. And he did and because because as as sort of the research shows, like Nicholson basically rewrote the scene. And so it gets done, and there's a lot of silence. And then Ravelson kind of turns his head and goes, is, is that it? Is it over? And Nicholson apparently goes like, this is the one fucking scene that you wanted from me, and you didn't even watch? He, he, oh, Ravelson fantastic. gave him this, this, like, this complete solitude to do it, and then Nicholson rips him apart for not actually watching the scene. Quite, a, quite an anger issue. I don't know if he's still... I'm sure he's calmed down a little bit now in his old age, but I, I do love Angry Jack. I love Angry Jack more than I m- love most things in movies. You know, Few Good Men. You know, that, that supposed incident where he, like, took a golf club to some executive's windshield. Like, I love, I just love Angry Jack. And, I'm, you know, I'm starting to think, you know, as much as I love 70s films and I love 70s actors, you know, I've always been a Pacino guy. Like, Pacino, he's my guy. He's my number one. That run of films that he had in the 70s is fucking fantastic. But... I'm starting to think, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm actually a Nicholson guy. I'm starting I mean, to find I'm starting to find a lot in his performances that I identify. I don't want to get too personal, but the reason why I connected so deeply with this film this time around is like I saw so much of myself in 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 Bobby Dupree. You know, not obviously I'm not talented. I can't play the fucking piano or any instrument, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not really much of a creative type, but the the intimacy issues, the lack of empathy, I definitely I definitely struggle with those things in my own life. It really, man, it hit me fucking hard this time. I uh, one of the comparisons I made when I was thinking about this is is um, uh, Jake uh, Jake Lamata from Raging Bull, uh, uh, another character who 
you know, makes choices I don't necessarily agree with, but I didn't, it's weird. And I will talk about the ending obviously at some point, but like, I, I don't necessarily find Bobby despicable, you know, whereas with LaMotta I did. And, and I, you know, we've already, let's go back and listen to our raging bull episode. You will hear me bitch a lot about that movie, but I, I think I also just appreciated the, the, yeah, the nuance of, of, of what's going on here. Um, Oh man, I, I'm so, I'm just so desperately not wanting to just jump right to the end of the movie. Um, let's talk well, about let's, the freeway. Let's talk about, yeah, I was going to say, let's do a, let's talk about the iconic scene. Now, when I use the word iconic, is, is that a word that you agree with now that you've seen it? Do you, would you say, oh yes, this does deserve to be mentioned in the pantheon of scenes that we consider to be important or essential or, or iconic in sort of film history in general? Um, I, I think that there are a few in this. Um, I, and I do think that the, the stuck in traffic is, is one of them. Um, and, and I love that's him barking a, at the dog. I love that yeah. little bit of madness. That's great. And that's, that's the thing too, is it, it, it it's cause there's so many things going on. It's like, it's almost like everybody's fantasy and like to be like, just to be able to get out of your car and like, well, fuck it. I'm not going anywhere. So let me just check some shit out. Let me see what's going on. Right. Because well, I think you, the most extreme version of that is the opening of La La Land. I mean, we can't we can't oh all God. live in that world. No, I don't. I, I don't want to live in that world. But um, so so there's yeah there's and the, him barking at the dog and him checking like you know standing on the moving truck to be like hey what's out there, and there's something so great like we, we talk about f- foreshadowing sometimes, but there's something so lovely, so wonderful about. Him in the back of that truck playing that out of tune piano and and writing it off the the uh the off ramp and it's i i you know it I feel like that's there's so much to be said about that like it, it like this broken piano and it's it's going into the sunset like there's nobody there to hear it really there's nobody there to understand the complexity of what he's doing and it's out of tune. there's just you know like bobby is that out of tune piano do you know what i mean like that that's like oh absolutely it's like it, it, you know and like to be like you know what what that piano would be if it was tuned like just like it would just be the same thing of like what would what would bobby be like if he wasn't emotionally stunted what what would that be um I, I just love, I just loved, I loved it. I love that a lot. Well, and I, I wish that I could have found something about the relevance of Chopin because the, the two pieces that we do see him play in the film are both Chopin. I couldn't find anything about the relevance of that or why that composer in particular. I'm sure there's somebody more musically inclined out there that could maybe help us out with that, but... I I wonder I I, I, I love both of those sequences where he where we do actually get to see him play, especially the second one where it's it's all about the lack of emotion when it yeah. comes to playing and the emotional reaction that Catherine has versus him saying, Oh, I felt nothing playing that and I played it better when I was eight years old and he makes her feel bad for having an emotional connection to him, him as a musician and him as an artist and, and playing that very, very beautiful piece. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you there. No, no, I was just going to say, I, I wonder if there's, because I know that Five Easy Pieces actually comes from a a uh, uh, a book of music that ex- that existed at one point, and I wonder if it, if it was, 
if there was any real relevant, I'm, I'm not trying to say there wasn't, but if it was just like, these were just the five pieces that were in that, that book. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to, to getting on the road then. And the, cause this is, you know, like so many of those important seventies films, this is also partially a road film as well. Yeah. Um, let's just deal with Palm right now. I fucking hated it. Yeah. That that is that is the one that is the the major bullet point the the major negative bullet point about this film and and as you mentioned earlier like she does she does serve a purpose in a sort of you know roundabout way like we get that she's there it's it's a bitch and moan about hey I'm going to Alaska I saw I love the idea of she saw a picture and in the picture it looked cleaner so that's where she's gonna go that I do kind of appreciate I I appreciate the sort of naivety of that. But the way she's just talking, I I should have gotten a count of how many times she uses the word crap because it's gotta be thirty to forty at least. I, I was so like I just I found her beyond annoying, and when she started like being like a a bitch to to Rayette, I was like, why are you still driving her? I don't understand this at all. I mean, I, I yeah. do love the little, like, don't call me honey Mac, don't call me Mac honey. Like, the, clearly there's tensions are getting heated in the car, but uh, that that cute little back and forth is not worth that. I Right. And I, I, I kind of see the point. I'm sure, you know, there's, there's, and it, it comes up later in the movie where we have the Samia character who is philosophizing there. In, in the living room and, and Jack calls her out on it. I mean, it's It seems like it's an indictment of people that just talk without saying anything. So I, I kind of, I understand its purpose, but and, and yeah, the four, you, you know me in a fourth wall break when she looks at the camera and she's like, you know, it's so filthy, there's so much crap. I don't even want to talk about it. And of course that repeated line that she doesn't want to talk about it, yet she can't shut the fuck up. Yeah. I mean, and don't get me wrong, the Samia character at the, towards the end is also, it's equally a, as annoying, but the scene is more relevant to what's going on that I'm like, okay, I get it. I, I, I mean, I, you know, again, in hindsight, 50 years later, I'd be like, well, just have what Palm says and give it to this woman to say, I just, I didn't. Oh, uh, yeah, I found it. Yeah, I, I mean, was, you, can, you, can, you can get your movie down to about 90 minutes if you pull Palm out of it. Yeah, it's, it's it's painful. Watching, listening to her was was painful. Um, but but we're on the road. This film is shot. Uh, the diner scene was very famously shot at a Denny's in Eugene, Oregon, just off the I five. A lot of it is shot Pacific Northwest. There's very clearly the Puget Sound and the yeah. San Juan Islands in this film. Like how much I I love seeing, I love seeing our state on film. Uh, yeah, me too. I've I I they said Puget Sound and I got giddy. Yeah, I know. Like, I'm sorry. I know we have a lot of listeners from from outside of Washington, but if you don't live here, I I feel bad for you. We live in a very very beautiful state. Can I tell? I, I just really I gotta tell you one story really quick. I so when I was getting married, I had to drive back from Indiana, and one of my groomsmen is from the East Coast. He he uh, grew up in Delaware, and uh, it was the last day that we were traveling. And my my parents live up in Laconer, and before they moved to their boat, they had this house and. To get to their house, we you come around this corner and then you go downhill, and they live they they live on the water. So there's like some of the San Juans out there and uh, and whatever I, I don't know what the I think it's called I think it's Fidalgo Bay right there. But you have to go down this hill, and we were coming into town uh, at like you know six o'clock. The sun is setting. We come around this bend of the trees, and, and like my friend Lee saw everything, and I remember he, he goes, 
oh, I get why you like living out here. And I was like, yeah, West Coast, best coast, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. If you were in the same room with me, that would be a very aggressively violent high five right now. <laughs> so yeah, we do. I do. We, I live, we, live, we live in the best state. I haven't been to a lot of them. I've been to California. I've been to Georgia. I've been to DC. I've been to Texas. Like, I'm sorry. We are, of those, ours is very clearly the best. Yeah, I would agree. But don't move here. Yeah. Don't ruin it. Yeah. Don't. Yeah, Move all here. you transplants, you stay stay where you are. Come and visit, appreciate it, and then leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the diner scene. I I really like it. I really love the logic in it. I love him working around the no substitutions thing. And like I said, I just I love Angry Jack. And knowing that that is based on a semi real incident where he was in a coffee shop kind of got there late joining this group the group was winding up the waitress and the manager as it was and so they just snatch jack's coffee away and he loses it and just swipes everything off the table i don't know it's not it's not behavior that of course that i i endorse or anything like that but i everybody loves hearing hearing a story about you know an angry incident like that yeah well and it's i i don't get me wrong i like the scene too but it, it was funny between like between the the scene on the freeway and this scene in the diner there's something about this about bobby that it i i i'm gonna say it this way and then please you can take this and and um you help trying to help kind of figure out what i'm trying to say there's almost like play acting going on it's almost like he's performing for some of the people that he's around like i i do truly wonder if the two hitchhikers weren't with him and it's just him and him and Rayette at that diner, does he do the same thing? Oh, I absolutely Maybe he does. think so. Um, and like the scene on the freeway, like if he's by himself, there's no way he's getting out of his car. And like the other, and I, I don't mean to backpedal a little bit, but there's that scene where um, he basically is, is telling, telling Rayette that he's going to, he's got to go see his dad and she's got to stay home. Then he has that freak out in the car and it felt disingenuous that that moment where he he has his little tantrum in the car, but then again, it's like, it's I feel like that's almost like performing for himself in a way, like like it, it, it's like he could have easily had just gone out there and and said like fuck and then gone back in, but he he has this weird physical like spasm almost in the car and then goes back in and says, do you want to come? There's this. Like, and it just goes back to the the uh, the the emotional stunting of Bobby. It's like he, it's like he doesn't quite know how to be in in a situation. And the scene in the diner, while funny and iconic, and and the whole logic of it is great too, absolutely. But it does feel a bit performative. Now, and that's nothing against. That's not talking about Jack Nicholson, but just that character. I I don't know. I can't I can't find myself agreeing with that because I've. Not obviously not the freeway scene or the the diner scene, but the moment where he goes out to the car and has that that emotional spasm, I I've done that, I, and I've done that more recently than I would really really care to admit in public. Um, so like I, I I get it, I I really I I get this character. It's it's almost there's some stuff in it that is really uncomfortable for me to watch because I've had 
not those conversations and those interactions per se, but I, you know, I have seen myself in versions of that. So I can't, yeah, I can't, I can't necessarily agree with the disingenuous thing though. I can, I can definitely see your point of view from a, from a performance coming from a place of, of performance and performing for himself. I, I do actually like that phrasing, even though I don't agree with it. <laughs> well, and, it, and it's not, it's not the, uh, it's not for the the diner scene or the freeway scene specifically. Uh, the, the, just that little moment in the car felt a bit whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, the, it's especially the one that's especially uncomfortable for me is when when he comes in before that and he's talking to her and and she's blanking him and the things that he's saying to her. That to me, I'm like, oh man, I've I've been there. I've said that. Like I like I mentioned earlier again, I don't want to get overly personal, but you know, intimacy issues. I you know, I I definitely have reckoned with the, especially in the last few years, reckoned with the fact that I I have them and I have treated some women in my life like shit. I'm not definitely not proud of it, and I do feel a deep shame for it. But man, I see, like I just I just can't help but see a lot of myself in this this Bobby character, which makes it just ah, this fucking movie just tears me asunder, man. <laughs> So yeah, so then we we get on the road and we um, we meet Tita, we meet my my unsung hero of the movie. Oh, I'm so glad you went with her. I love Lois Smith in this. I I adore her. I really really do. She's so wonderful. Yeah, she's she's quirky in a way, and um, I I mean obviously the theater department and the music department are separate departments, but I I know in my brief interactions like doing musicals and like seeing people in the band and, and, and talking to them, I I've, I've seen and met that kind of person who's, who's into music, like deeply into music and really talented at what they do. Um, and I, I, again, I kind of like, kind of like Karen Black's character. Like I really saw like a genuine person within this, like could, could almost be seen from a different perspective as, as caricature. But I, I, I could, I see the real human in there. Yeah, no, we, you know, like, we know people like that, you know, that's the, I, that, that idea of, I, I love when we first meet her, and she's hunched over the piano, and she's humming, but she's humming out of tune, and then when Jack comes in, I just keep calling him Jack, he's, whatever, he's just Jack, <laughs> when, when Jack comes in, and, uh, you know, she's talking to him about the piano, you know, how it's got no no intrusive idiosyncrasies. I love the way that she words that, the way she's talking about this piano. Like it's, you know, more than just a piano. You know, music obviously is life. We find out that music is, is life to these these people, the the, the siblings and, and their father. And, and her emotional reaction to him is just really, you know, talking about how you always do this to me. Like she genuinely does feel a love and, and a pain for her brother not being in her life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's 100% a real character. You know what? I didn't I didn't prepare an unsung hero. I was thinking maybe Laszlo Kovacs, but it was really just for the one scene at the end. Uh, you know, the 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 the, the there's a couple of really great wides in this film. Uh yeah. when Jack gets fired and there's no dialogue there. That's a great shot. The one where Elton has been arrested and there's the little sun breaks in the sky as he walks away from that situation with the cops. And then obviously the establishing one, you know, where he's wheeling his dad and that sky is just that beautiful purpley orange. It's just, 
oh man, it's just a, a spectrum of wonderful colors and framing. And it's one of those moments where I, I can see what Werner Herzog says when he says you, you, you can do more than just direct actors in a scene. You can direct landscape. And that's, that's in that scene, I feel like Laszlo Kovacs is doing that. So I was going to go Laszlo, but I might, I might piggyback with you and go Lois Smith. Cause I just, I do, I love her so much in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's great. Um, yeah, and then, you know, yeah, and then we're there, and and you know, we meet we meet Carl and 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 Catherine, and that relationship is interesting. I I, I don't. It's tough because I you know like I don't I we don't really find out what their relationship is. It's hinted at later that they they they're set to be married or they might be engaged. I don't know how. Yeah, they they never specifically use the word engage, but Samia I think mentions that oh you're you're going to be married again, and it's you know she mentions after her and Jack have had their moment of infidelity, she mentions how Carl has restored. I think the word she used is he's restored her. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there's there's a line too. God, there's a line after that. Like it's like the the like after they've they've had their 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 moment. And she asks him how he is, and he says, "He says I'm incredible," and that stood out so much to me because I'm like, and again, I felt like like you are you're that's so. And eventually, he says like when he was playing, or no, that's before that he didn't have any emotional, uh, uh, any emotional reaction when he was playing the music. But like when he said that, I'm like, dude, you are, like, who are you even like? It just makes you wonder, like, have we seen a genuine moment of of Bobby throughout the movie? I think I think in that moment he does believe that he is feeling incredible. I think, uh, and this is maybe me reading into it, but you know he cheats on Ray at at almost every opportunity, and yeah. I don't know if that is just opportunism. It very well may be, or maybe it is a sex addiction, and he does need to fill himself up. And in that moment because he's gotten what he wanted. Yes, maybe he does, in fact, feel incredible, but if that feeling is going to go away probably within hours. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I know there are, there are little scenes in between here too, but then, I mean, for me, the 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 scene with the, the father is, is really good. Um, there's a line in there, like, and I don't, I don't feel like I have a, 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 like a very complicated relationship with my father, but I feel like, you know, if you, you look deep enough, I'm sure anybody can say that about a parent or a sibling or whatever. And that, that great, great line that gets said in there is like, if, if you could talk, we wouldn't be talking. And, and it is, it is That's a one so good. It is a one-sided conversation. And it's like, I think part of, part of why, that stood out to me so much. That whole scene was like, I've, I mean, maybe it's just that the actor, I mean, but I have full blown played out conversations that will never take place between me and somebody else. Right. Where it's like, you know, like, Oh man, I've always wanted to say this and they're not always aggressive, but it's just like, Oh man, I've, I've always needed to say this to you or, or, you know, you always thought this, but, and, in a way it's like this it's this is almost like an acting exercise but played out in real life like you can't talk but you can hear me and i don't know if you'll understand everything i'm saying but um yeah that just a great 
a great moment, and I'm you know so happy that Jack Nicholson had the freedom to to rewrite it and and feel comfortable to do to do that scene the way that felt the most genuine to him <laughs> such a such a stark contrast from our our billy wilder double feature where changing one one syllable would have been like nope cut do it again uh yeah, yeah. and this was i and i called that out i think in the apartment and this is uh, that's i i love this style of acting this style of improvisation i you know i don't i don't i've i definitely don't know the pressure of like having to read the words that i've written on stage in front of somebody i mean that's well that's not true that's not true. I have, but, but the added pressure of that, like, and it, I just, I just think they, they captured a great genuine moment when they shot that. And even though he didn't, even though Rafelson didn't watch Nicholson do it, um, I, I loved the lengths that he went to, to try to get him in a space where he could. I mean, it speaks to, it speaks to a, a really important dynamic, a really important relationship. Apparently they were, really good friends in real life i love in that story i love the trust there yeah the, oh, for the sure. trust in that is really uplifting to me yeah it's 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 tough you know i've i've done a handful of shows where the director isn't really interested in what you have to bring you know it's it's their vision and and you're just sort of a cog in the wheel um and and that's fine. And if the show is good enough and you're, and you got a good cast, you know, you can kind of work through, but I've always found that the, the best, the best working relationships are one built around collaboration and trust and, and the freedom to, to try. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, I, it's weird because I know when we were talking about three billboards, we were talking about how the actors also talked about McDonough's text as like, you, you don't fuck with this. This is the text. And I don't know how strict he was about changing single words or whatever, but basically it was a similar thing to Billy Wilder. Like this is, these are the words don't change them. But I, and I love McDonough. So I'm not going to say that like, that's wrong, you know, but yeah, this, this, you know, actors group sixties and seventies, you know, freedom to like know the characters. So the words aren't necessarily like the end all be all. And if I'm feeling it, so will they, and I need to be in the right headspace to do this. Like I, I do appreciate all of that. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that drives me crazy when I hear not just actors, but directors when they get hired and then there's all the, the backlash and the wanting to constrain them and to make them do something so specifically, you know, you hired this person for a reason. So trust their instincts. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that's that's what what Bob and 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 Jack had, especially. And I'm I'm excited to for you to see Marvin Gardens as well because it it really does expand on that relationship. It is a great continuation. Yeah, of, I, I of five easy pieces. I've already decided in my head that uh, since the last picture show is in the book, and I the only two from the box that I haven't seen are Head and. Um, and King of Marvin Gardens. So whenever, whenever that time comes, I will watch those sort of complete my, my BBS uh, adventure that I went on. And I guess we, um, we haven't really talked much about them. I mean, that's, they, these guys really spearheaded that new Hollywood movement. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that they were, they had to sell and I don't, I couldn't find the reason why, but they sold uh, all of their 
outstanding stock to Columbia in 1971. This was a studio that was literally around for only five years. You know, this uh, this relationship with Burt Schneider, Rafelson, and then uh, Stephen Blauner, who joined them later, I, I think they really could have gone on to do some incredible things outside well, of the six or seven movies that they made. Well, and it's, yeah, it's tough because they did, like, you know, obviously Easy Rider gave them the credibility to, to go on and, and make, uh, you know, a, a couple other films that, again, it's not about critical success, but you know, five easy pieces in the last picture show really did garner a lot of critical attention. And, you know, and, and I don't know if they just sensed the wave of like, Oh, well, you know, the Godfathers and, you know, and the jaws and and those are years later to come. But like, you know, I, it's not like, it's not like the indie movement was, or, you know, that version of the indie movement was dying. I, I just, I wonder, you know, if they, cause I, I remember looking at, like uh, uh, Jaglum, who did uh, um, a safe place, and like Rafelson, and looking at their their later movies, they did not make good shit in the decades to follow this. Like they yeah. it, they just didn't, or or they just fell off completely. And I mean, yeah, Rafelson did Stay Hungry, which is utter garbage from everything I've read. They did the he did the remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice with Nicholson, which I again haven't read spectacular things about. Yeah. So and, I, I mean, it really is a shame that this this that creative force was squashed for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. So before I know you, I know you really want to address the ending, but before we get there, there are a couple. I just want to highlight a couple of hard cuts because we do we love a hard cut. We do. We do love a hard cut there are, here, yeah. There are a couple of really solid ones in the conversation, the opening conversation with Rayette and the hard cut to the bowling alley. I really like that. My favorite one, though, is after he's done talking to uh, his sister, being reunited with her, there's a hard cut to him having sex with a random woman. And it's really quite aggressive and, and passionate. I... Or, or whatever, whatever his version of passion is. My note was it's so funny you mentioned that. I was gonna I was gonna like not even bring it up, but my note for that moment was I don't know who he's fucking, but it looks painful. Yeah. Definitely. Like the thrashing and like I I, I was like, uh, fine, good for you, man. Whatever however know, you mo- need to do it. Movie sex is such bullshit. <laughs> My again, I, of course, because I'll bring up Ridley Scott whenever I can. He's, I think, he's gone on to do a few in some of his newer movies. Obviously, uh, in in The Counselor, there's a couple of of sex scenes in that. But um, he he at one point had said, "Why the hell would I shoot a sex scene when I could be having sex?" Or or something along those lines. He's like, "What's he's like? What's the point? It's nowhere near as interesting as actually having sex." Which I oh, I think is God. fucking again. I, I, of course, paraphrasing him there, but that is basically the point he was trying to get across. So the the ending of this thing. So he's had the he's had the confrontation with his with his with uh, Spicer. He's caught his uh, sister having sex with uh, his father's nurse, yep. and he kind of loses his shit at that in a in a way to protect his sister. But he also knows that his sister is attracted to the Spicer character, and that you know he's he's even encouraged her to hey you know go talk to him yeah or go well, and go, he's also go play he's, ping pong with him. He's beyond desperate to talk to Catherine 
and I don't think he's even I don't think he's even that mad at Spicer again. I think it's it's another it's another thing for him to to get mad about. You know, it's another reason yeah. to 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 continue to be enraged at this moment. Um, yeah, he's got so much of it and just nowhere to direct it. So that's that's what's in front of him. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. So he and he he goes to a bar. He leaves the island. I, I, I'm not, he comes back and he, he, you know, he was going to leave without saying bye to Tita, but he does. And they have a nice little moment before they go. And Ray, it's like, if you ever find yourself down our way, you know, we'd be more than happy to have you. And Jack Nicholson's like already like in the fucking car and, and she wants to take a picture. And he's like, fuck, nope, we're, we're going. And uh, again, there's another, there's another moment where she's trying to be all lovey dovey and sing to him. And, and he pushes her away and, 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 so again, so he, okay, so I, wanna, I love so, this. This is the moment where she actually, I love her character the most because she does stand up to him at that point. Yeah. And she's like, you need to quit pushing me away. You know, I'm, I am good to you. You're never going to find anybody. Of course, she's speaking potentially hyperbolic, but you know, you're never going to find somebody that treats you the way I do. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm watching this movie by myself. I'm taking notes. I got my laptop on my lap and uh, I'm watching it. And I don't know. Again, I think I've seen, I think I've heard about the diner scene, right? But that's it. Like, and, and doing the research, like I've already mentioned, I don't, I'm like, fuck, I'm not going to read anything. I don't want it, you know? So I'm sitting here and I'm watching this, this scene. They pull up. She goes to get coffee. He goes to the bathroom, takes off his jacket He's touching the walls in that bathroom way too much. It's like, dude, yeah, stop that's, that. that's that's a bad idea. But he that's does gross. look magnificent in that black turtleneck. Liz, Liz is watching it with me, and I'm like, hey, I I really dig that turtleneck. Do you think that I could pull one off? And it was an instant no. Just <laughs> <laughs> and and then she countered with like, well, she's like, well, nobody really looks good in a turtleneck. And I was like, well, well, Nicholson does. He looks handsome as shit right now. And she's like, well, yeah, he's got a nice long neck to which I replied. What do I, do I have a short neck? <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't know one way or the other. My just, friend. Uh, just to give you some insight into that, but he does look particularly dashing in that. Yeah. Moment. And, and so when he, when he gets out of the bathroom and hops into the, the 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 semi and I, I i'm cutting over some of the dialogue right but like but basically it, it takes off and she's coming out of the cafe just standing there looking around and then we, we lingered there for so long I, I had a couple of thoughts all at once and so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to just get them out i thought a lot actually at that moment of of andre rublev and i'll tell you why because we talked about the, the, the ringing of the bell at the end of that movie and how, like, we need, we need all of the stuff before it for that moment to be as effective as it is. And, again, teeter-tottering so far kind of in this movie, the ending of it genuinely left me shocked and may have like catapulted itself into like like top five movie endings ever. 
it's because it it's so how do I want to phrase this? It's so like shocking and feels like out of left field and yet is totally viable. And that's to me, that's the, that's a perfect kind of ending is we, we hate him for doing it. And it's, we almost were like, how could he do? No, he could never do that. But, but yeah, he could and he shouldn't have, but he did. And it's just, it's just like, and 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 obviously, like just the way that they did it, like just the way that the fucking truck pulls out and she's just on, just left wandering, it's it's fucking painful, uh, but in in, in a very beautiful so artistic well. way. I yeah I I I'm with you. It is a shocking ending. It's it's. But it's it's so necessary. Like I feel like the movie has like this is what his character has been has been getting. You know, this is there's stumbling over my words here. There's no other way for this movie to end in my mind, and it's earned this ending. It's earned the shocking ending, and I I love what's going on with him emotionally in that scene. What he has to do in that span of 60 seconds or so when he's in the truck talking to the truck driver, that's some really intense emotional shit on a, on a, a sort of subtext level as well because the truck driver says to him, hey man, what happened to your jacket? And he tells him a lie about, oh, you know, car lit on fire, it, yeah, everything got burned yeah. up, I got nothing. He's like, well, there's a there's a, a jacket in the back when you grab that, man, because where we're, I love this line, where we're going, it's cold as hell, which is, yeah, where he's going, it is cold as hell, because he is, he's, he is, he's a cold as hell person, and he's probably, they're probably going up to Alaska, you know, where, you know, that, that landscape is going to fit him. Yeah. His, his view of the world, the way he treats people, the way he treats himself, and the way he says, I'm fine. Yeah, There's, that, I always love seeing I love seeing shame personified on film because he knows what he's doing. He knows how badly Rayette is going to be fucked up from this situation. Like yeah. he really knows the damage that he's going to do. And he, he needs to feel the discomfort of being cold. He needs to feel something other than this massive weight of shame that is going to follow him probably the rest of his life. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I and like I, said, I love the way all of that is shot. I love the stuff in the bathroom before it. Like you said, him putting his hands on the wall and looking at himself in the mirror. That is, I that. So you'd mentioned at the beginning of the episode or or somewhere much earlier about the the five easy five easy pieces, the five iconic moments in this film. Is that that shot one of them? Him yeah. looking in the mirror. I mean, yeah. well, no, it's not even it's not even that shot. It's not. It wasn't like a shot specific, but just like that scene, that moment, like. It's I, 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 I like the way it, it's it's totally earned. And, you know, I think for me, too, like I knew going in like this was a pretty short movie and I I hadn't like I hadn't checked the you know, I didn't know where we were in the movie. And so when um, when he gets in and, it, and the truck takes off and we see Rayette and then the, the names just start scrolling like I was already like in like a, a state of like disbelief, you know, that, it, that this had happened. And then when the when the credits started rolling. It, it was like a second wave of it. Like, oh, this is the end. Like, this is the actual yeah. oh, end of yeah. the movie. And yeah, you have the shock of what's going on in the mo- in that moment, and then you have the shock of, oh, fuck, I don't get anything else. 
Yeah. Th- uh, this is it. And now I have to just fucking sit in this. Like, yeah. like him. Like, we are forced to just sit in this, what he's doing with him. Yeah. Now, I feel like we're, we're, we're getting pretty close to question time. There is one, one little piece, that, another little piece that I wanted to read from uh, Kent Jones, uh, his Criterion essay, which he called The Solitude, that he wrote in 2010. There's just a moment in this essay, which is... It, like he fucking he nails it this is one of my favorite criterion essays he says touched perplexed and above all curious what would it be like to go through life with someone who listens to tammy wynette when you've been raised on beethoven or to make a living working in an oil field when you've been groomed for a career on the concert stage to live as if nothing were permanent and everything were up for grabs there has been a lot of ink spilled about the irresponsible behavior but maybe not enough about the re- the restlessly inquisitive nature that resorts to it to get away from things that get bad. His ambivalence is seemingly permanent and he is self-exiled to his own terrible purgatory forever on the verge. Yeah, I read that essay too. Kent Jones. Kent Jones fucking nailed it with that, man. So Mount Rushmore, Jack Nicholson. Yeah, so so I think I think that we see like the shining is just so much. And I think he, I like I like seeing kind of smooth Jack in Chinatown. So I do I I think it's I think it's one floor over the cuckoo's nest, a few good men, Chinatown, and five easy pieces. Uh, I ha- I have a runner up with the last detail, but yeah, it's it's cuckoo's nest, this easy rider, Chinatown for me. Yep, yep. I mean, I, and I mean, obviously all all good. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like I said earlier, I think I think Pacino is starting to become number two to Nicholson in my mind. I think I am, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming a Nicholson guy, and that's that's okay. But I mean, I I've always loved Cuckoo's Nest. Like yeah. that movie, that movie fucked me up the first time I saw it, and I can't wait to to get to that as an episode oh, yeah. where we can that's maybe good. we'll 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 go into this Jack Nicholson conversation further, and maybe maybe our Mount Rushmore's get revised as we explore more of his films. I'm I'm very excited for you to do Marvin Garden's Last Detail and uh, The Passenger. Yeah, I, yeah. I think you're really gonna like all so, of those a lot. And there's so many movies. And just yeah, there's too many. But pick up that next time you do an indicator buy, and you gotta buy Last Detail, man. Okay. All right. Um. So, Ian, should five easy pieces be in the book? Here's my dilemma. I love the last detail so fucking much. I want it to be in the book so goddamn badly. But I'm going to have to find another movie to pull out and replace with the last detail because five easy pieces 100% should be in the book. Yeah. Come on, man. You you just said it was one of the top five endings. No, I you know. Gotta... And, and I, I, you know, I was, I was back and forth. And, you know, what I was thinking about, if I was going to replace it, what would I do? I had a similar, kind of a similar idea that, I personally cannot believe that a few good men is not in the book. And as much as much as I believe that a few good men should be in the book. And as much as I don't think that this whole movie is the whole movie is excellent. There are too many really, really great moments in this movie. And so my answer is I do think that it should be in the book. That's awesome. I'm I'm so happy. And for for those of you keeping score at home, 
It hasn't been since within our gates that you and I have agreed on a film being in the book. Yeah, it's it's nice to it's nice to come together again and and have some have some camaraderie in that department. So, but so, it's good that makes for, makes for more interesting episodes, right? Th- there you go, exactly. So we both uh, agree. We believe that five easy pieces should be in the book. But as always, we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Hit us up. Let us know what you think of five easy pieces of Jack Nicholson. What What do you think is his Mount Rushmore? We'd love to hear it. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify and Stitcher and Google and Apple Podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash a thousand one by one. Uh, support us financially. You can also uh, pick a movie that we talk about at a later episode. Um, and coming up next week, we jump to 1980. We've already let you know what this one is. We're going to dive into the world of David Lynch and talk about the Elephant Man. Uh, very excited for that episode uh, to dive into a, a very interesting filmmaker. But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. <laughs>